I'm going to read, and I'm going to start in Psalm 51. And this is this was David's confession, and again, and that's very important. Which a, a confession we uh, and we're going to learn is a lot different than a profession or just a declaration of something. A confession has to do with a personal, intimate experience and reality of truth in Christ and a proper image. So our conscience has everything, a proper, clean conscience, has everything to do with a proper, clear image about who we are in Christ. Now, when David wrote through the Holy Spirit, used him to write it about himself in Psalm 51, again, the, the reality of it is this. This is what we first must read, and then we're going to get into this this morning. <clears throat> in Psalm 32, verse 1 says this, Blessed is he whose transgression, his deliberate sin, is forgiven, whose sin is covered. Okay? Ours in Christ is more than covered. It's been dealt with. Blessed is the man unto whom the Lord imputes not iniquity and in whom there is no guile, whose spirit there is no guile. So actually when this was written, okay, Psalm 51 was written well before Psalm 32 because it was a whole year from the time that he fell, David, in the, with the sin of, of Bathsheba, that sin that he committed with her, and we see that in 2 Samuel, uh, the 11th and 12th chapters. Psalm 51 was written first, something that he went through. It took him a whole year to go from Psalm 51 to Psalm 32. And this is what he said in, in Psalm 51. He said, have mercy upon me, in verse 1, O God, according to your loving kindnesses, according unto the multitude of your tender mercies, blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from mine iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. For I acknowledge my transgressions and my sin is ever before me. Against you, you only have I sinned and done this evil in your sight. That's why we say the Bible the way the Bible makes it clear. There's no difference between evil and sin. Sin is evil and evil is sin. Done this evil in your sight that you may be, listen, that you may be justified when you speak, and be clear when you judge. Behold, I was shapen in iniquity and in sin. Did my mother conceive me to bring me forth, really? Behold, you desire truth in the inward parts, and in the inward part you will make me to know wisdom. Purge me with hyssop, and I will be clean. Wash me, and I will be whiter than snow. And if you want to know about hyssop, you have to go back to Exodus, the 12th chapter, and those first 13 verses in that application. Purge me, he said, with hyssop. Now, verse 8, make me to hear joy and gladness. Whose job is that? Make me to hear joy and gladness, that the bones which you have broken may rejoice. Hide your face from my sins and blot out all my iniquity. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. Cast me not away from your presence. Thank God that never happens to us in Christ because we are positioned in him. And take not away, take not your Holy Spirit from me, something that can't happen to a believer ever. Okay. 
Restore unto me the joy of your salvation and uphold me with your free spirit, the freedom of your spirit. Then will I teach transgressors your ways and sinners will be converted unto you. And this is what he prayed. He said, deliver me from blood guiltiness, O God. In other words, he's crying out with, with his, in his conscience to be cleansed on the inside. That was his prayer in Psalm 51, verse 6 and verse 10. And now he's crying this out. Deliver me from blood guiltiness, O God. See, the sacrifices could never do that. It could only cover it till Christ would come and he would actually deal with it. He said, deliver me from blood guiltiness. Guilt. <laughs> oh, boy. Oh, God, you God of my salvation. He's praying, God, please, please deliver me from a guilty conscience. And my tongue will sing aloud. And notice what it says of your righteousness. Of course, the righteousness, 1 Corinthians 1, 30, that is ours in Christ. So that's what David was crying out for. But here's our reality in Christ. And then we're going to turn to, in, in our Bibles, we'll turn to Hebrews. Hebrews, the ninth chapter. And we're going to see some beautiful truths that are brought out, of course, as the Holy Spirit can only do so. So in Hebrews 9, <clears throat> verse, verse 11, it says this, But Christ, being come a high priest of good things to come. See, that's the things that David was looking forward to. The good things to come. And of course, that had to be Christ in Galatians chapter 4, verse 4. Born of a woman, born unto the law, that he could deliver us uh, from the law, and from the law of guilt and shame. But Christ being a high priest of good things to come by a greater and more perfect or complete tabernacle. That was his very body that he came in, in John 1 verse 14. Not made with hands. That is to say, not of this building. Now listen in verse 12. Neither by the blood of goats and calves, all those sacrifices... But by his own blood, he entered in once into the holy place, the holiest of all, having obtained eternal redemption. Having obtained eternal redemption. Verse 13, for if the blood of bulls and of goats and the ashes of a heifer sprinkling the unclean sanctifies to the purifying of the flesh. Verse 14, how much more will the blood of Christ who through the eternal spirit offered himself without spot to God, purge your conscience from dead works to serve, to worship, to serve, to give our mind over to a living God, that living Christ. And then finally in Hebrews, the 10th chapter, Hebrews chapter 10, verse 1, for the law having a shadow of good things to come. See, a shadow, but not the substance and of good things to come. You notice that there would be no shadow without substance. So the substance in reality was the fact that Christ was the lamb slain before the foundation of the earth in the eternal mind of God. In Hebrews 13, uh, verse 8, okay, Jesus Christ the same yesterday, today, and forever, but he was that lamb in Revelations 13, verse 8, that was slain, but he had to come and actually fulfill it. And this is what this is talking about. Of good things to come. Look at, and not the very image. See, you cannot separate a, a 
image, a proper image, apart from a cleansed conscience. Okay? Not the very image of the things can never with those sacrifices which they offered. And how many still do it because they're not taught? They want to offer their works. And you've heard, and I've heard so many times, Christ did this. The least we can do is this for him. We can't do anything for him because the work is finished. He himself is the completion. And he himself is the completion of each of us in the individuality of our own image in him. Not the very image of those things can never with those sacrifices which they offered year by year continually make those that would come there to be perfect, to be complete with a cleansed conscience. Verse 2, for then would they have ceased to be offered because that the worshipers, listen, once purged should have had no more conscience of sins. Isn't that a wonderful thing? And again, when we talk about being a man or a woman of God, and we've been talking about the fact of, uh, of how even in First and Second Timothy, in the, in the order of God, how it goes into a man of God, how to function as a, as a man of God in this present evil world. And how important then is it for a man of God to function in a proper image because of a cleansed conscience? A cleansed conscience. So how important is that? Well, I'm just going to read this and then we can get into uh, what God would have for us um, this morning. So Father, we do thank you for your faithfulness. And we thank you that God the Holy Spirit, the theologian, the scholar, will take the things of Christ and, and by your mercy and grace and finished work and unconditional love, you will show them unto us, all of us who are yours through Christ. And thank you, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen. So in 1 John chapter 1, and we're going to see some differences here. 1 John chapter 1 and verse 1, it says, That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked upon, and we have... And what? We have handled of the word of life, that word of life man, that was Christ. That's who they're talking about through the Holy Spirit. For the life was manifested. And it's saying here, the life is the article in the Greek, and it's pointing and saying, see this life, this is life, no other kind. There's no other life. For the life was manifested, and we have seen and bear witness as a testimony, and show unto you that eternal life, which was with the Father, was with the Father, and what? And was manifested, was manifested, was shown out, spelled out clearly unto us. That which we have seen and heard, declare we unto you. Not just a declaration, but an absolute confession of reality that you also may have fellowship with us. Again, fellowship has to do with Christ only, and that's it. Fellowship has to do with a proper image. Fellowship, having fellowship in an exchange of this personal life that we have in our image in Christ has only to do with Christ in each individual. No such thing as fellowship any other way. The Bible's making it crystal clear to us. 
very, very clearly, see, that we, which we have seen and heard, declare we unto you that you also may have fellowship with us. Notice that? Each individual can be the means of fellowship with another because the us is them in Christ and Christ in them. And then we can exchange that. And we don't let another thing come in. We don't recognize another thing at all. We don't allow another thing in. Not a single fallen human thought do we allow or any kind of conduct that's outside of Christ to be allowed inside this exchange of fellowship with Christ. This proper image because we're functioning in a cleansed conscience. And these things, and then we see that you may have fellowship with us and truthfully, truly our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. And these things write we unto you that your joy may be completely full. Okay, so this then is the message. Here's the message. The message has to do with the life, the life that Christ is, which we have heard of him. We're going to talk about two little words again this morning. The word in and of. They're extremely important. We've mentioned these before. So when you even read your English Bibles, you can have all of us together can have a clear understanding of what is being said in its proper context Context where that word in and of are brought up. These, this then is the message which we have heard of him and declare unto you, listen, that God is light. Notice that? That God is light. Listen to this. And in him is no darkness at all. You see, there's no darkness. There's no ruin of the flesh in a fellowship between the individual and Christ, if it's true fellowship. It just isn't. See? There's no darkness at all. There's nothing of the flesh under the prince and power of the air that would ever enter into what we would call fellowship or having in common with another believer. What is my conduct? My conduct, okay, my conduct, it's not so much what I say. It's, it's really, what is the content of my thinking? Because in Proverbs 23, verse 7, as a man thinks in his heart, his mind, so is he. And that's why we need to guard our heart with all diligence in Proverbs 4, verse 23, because out of it are the issues of life. We're going to make an issue of the flesh and a bad image, false image, and a lie, or true fellowship in Christ. That starts with the individual in Christ. That's what us is. And then we bring that into a corporate fellowship. And that's why Jesus said himself, where two or three are gathered together in my name, there am I in the midst. In my nature, their nature... Uh, with me and them, in my nature in them, that's fellowship. And not only is it fellowship, it is the only recognized local assembly that God has his eye on. Yes, he never removes his eye from the righteous in Job 36 and verse 7. But you can be sure of one thing. When two or three are gathered together, and it's not Christ, in, in the purity of an image of fellowship and individuality coming together, he doesn't recognize it as a local assembly. He recognizes that those are in Christ, but he doesn't recognize that he has a proper place and a proper fellowship when they get together. And boy, is that some sobering and serious things, especially with the times that we are facing. But greater is he that's in us than he that's in the world in 1 John 4, 4. And this is the victory that's already overcome this world. 
everything that's happening, even our faith. Our, our faith is Christ himself. We live by the faith of Jesus Christ in Galatians 2.20, and we are crucified from the old. That crucified old has no place in fellowship uh, with Christ and, of course, with each other. Now, verse 6. If we say that we have fellowship with him and walk in darkness, we lie. Whew. We lie and do not the truth. The truth is not active. Thereby a false image. But separated from all of that, but separated from it all, if we walk in the light... As he is in the light, guess what? We have fellowship one with another. Now there's a proper exchange. A proper exchange. We have fellowship one with another, and the blood of Jesus Christ, his son, is something that continually is cleansing us. And look at what it says. From what? Some sin? No. All sin. No sin in fellowship. No fellowship in sin. None whatsoever. And, and what? The blood of Jesus Christ, his son, cleanses us. Who? All? No, only those whose sins are dealt with. That's who? All. Sin. If we say that we have no sin. Here it's speaking of nature. If we say that we have no sin nature, we deceive ourselves. I don't know. Is there any good thing in an evil sin nature? Nope. No, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. Can a believer be born again and then still completely forget and think that there's good in him and he doesn't have a sin nature anymore? Do you know some teach that? This is clearly against one naturism and the false teaching of the exchanged life. Okay, that's false. That's clear in the scriptures right here. If we say that we have no sin nature, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. Now, can a believer who's really born again, who doesn't have anything of the old in Christ, but still has the flesh in them, but being not of it, in Romans 8, 9, can they believe they have no more sin nature? Yeah. But what happens then? The truth is not in them in that area. It's not. It's not in them in that area. Now, Verse 9, if we confess, we, who? Why doesn't it say many? If all the sins of every single human being were paid for, then why does it say if we? doesn't say many. It doesn't say all. It says we. Who are we? Those that are in Christ. If we confess our sins, he is what? Faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Okay, so 1.8 says, deals with the sin nature. 1.10 says this, if we say that we have not sinned, <laughs> we no longer sin, or I haven't sinned for a period of time, if we say that we have not sinned, we make him what? A liar. And his word is not in us. Okay, remember who the word is. The word is Christ. And that's experiential, by the way. Because we're in, remember what we said so many, many times by, by the pure grace of God and by the teaching, who we learn from is God himself through the power of the Holy Spirit. 
as he takes the things of Christ and shows them unto us in the order of gifts that he's given so that all of us can function as one in a local assembly. And thank God for that. Now, how important is it then that you and I, as believers, accurately distinguish between what? Sin in the flesh, right? Sin in the flesh and sin on the conscience. We talked about these things before, but we, again, I just, I'm walking in obedience. God said, this is it this morning. And I said, okay. Okay, now, if we can find these two things, okay, sin in the flesh and sin on the conscience, if we confound or confuse these two, what? Our souls become what? Confused and unhinged. In other words, not functioning properly, experientially, in a proper image. We become unhinged. And as a result, is our worship then unhinged or is it marred in some effect? Yes. That's why we read 1 John 1, 1 through 10. Now, there is no one, and boy, have I found this to be true, truer than it's ever been in my life at this point in my life. There is, for me personally, it's never been, I've never been more conscious of indwelling sin the closer that I walk in the light of the reality of who I am in Christ. You will see that as you grow and as I continue to grow, but we'll see it. Now, if we say that we have no sin, if we say that we don't have a sin nature, who do we deceive as believers? Ourselves. And what? The truth is not in us. Experientially. Experientially. But what do we see? What do we see? The verse that completely just precedes that. What do we see? I should say. What what does it say there? And here we see this. What? The blood of Jesus Christ, his son, cleanses us from all sin. You see that? No sin nature and no sins involved in fellowship. In proper image. It's not who we are. That's why it says in Romans 7, 17 and 20, it's no longer I that do it, but sin that dwells in me. We don't have to sin in in 1 John 2, 1 and 2, but we make a choice to do so, but thank God we can confess it, which we'll get into, and understand what confession is. Boy, do we need to understand it. We as his, and we as his church. So here is the absolute distinction between sin in us, nature, sin nature in us, and sins that become on us in our experience. One is our position, the nature's been dealt with and crucified, it's been condemned, and we'll see further on that the difference between, again, sin in us and sin on us, and it's fully brought out, and if it's not, we'll never be established on a proper foundation, and if we don't have a proper foundation, we won't have a proper image. If we don't have a proper image, we won't function in our proper place, and thereby we won't worship God the way that he's required us to do so and given us the means to do so in Christ. You know, we have the privilege to worship. You know what that means? There's absolute freedom from the old. Absolute freedom to worship him him who's done all and finished all. And here's what we need to know. And, and, And some would say that there is sin on the believer. 
Is that scriptural, that sin is on the believer, that the sin nature is on the believer in Christ? No, still doesn't say it's done away with. Why do you think he wouldn't do away with that sin nature? Because I'll tell you why. The scriptures make it crystal clear. Because the pride of men, like the beasts of the field, would come in and devour him in a heartbeat. Any of us. Any of us. In Deuteronomy 7, verse 22, he drives out those enemies a little at a time, lest the beasts of the field would devour them. And we know pride. Pride goes before destruction, in Proverbs 16, 18, and a hearty spirit before a fall. And thank God we've been delivered. But the truth of the matter is, who could say that there's sin on the believer in the presence of God? Because to do so would call into question the purging efficacy, effective results of the finished work of the blood of Jesus Christ is what? It would be to deny the truth, the truth of God's divine unchangeable, immutable record about who Christ is, his person and his work, and what he's done to God and for us. And it's an amazing truth to understand. Now, if the blood of Jesus can perfectly purge, then the believer's conscience is perfectly and completely purged. That is our reality. What are we bringing into a so-called fellowship? What, have the, what does the individual have to do with the old in them any longer? What does that have to do when two get together in Christ? One thing, never. Oh, never. And God forbids it, by the way, in Galatians 6 and verse 14. He absolutely commands us and forbids us for that not to happen. That's love. That is, that's the freedom of love commanding us. The freedom of love and his love commanding us. Now, the word of God puts it this way. And you and I, all of us together, must ever remember that it is from God himself that we are to learn. He knows that. Now, he does it in a proper order. Make no mistake about it. Make no mistake about it. But first and foremost, we need to know that it is from him that we learn in 1 John 2.20 and in 1 John 2.27, based upon John 16, 13, and 14. There's no question about it, based upon 1 Corinthians chapter 2 and verses 9 to 16. We don't have time to declare all those scriptures, but if you want them, there they are to get a full understanding of this reality of our image in Christ. Now, here's what happens. We're to learn from God, him alone, what the true condition, the true experience, based upon the position of who we are in Christ, of the believer in God's sight. Remember how many times we said what's the most important thing about us is that God knows us. He never knows us in Christ apart from Christ, ever. Oh, boy. Even his chastisement is loving chastisement because there wouldn't be any chastisement. You can see that in Hebrews, the 12th chapter, in verses 7 and 8. If we weren't his, we would be bastards, the product of an illegitimate relationship. Would we bring that into fellowship and call it that? No. God forbid. 
Thank you, Lord, that you forbid it and you'll deal with it lovingly, graciously, chastisingly if need be. But here's the thing. When we don't function in a proper image, and that image in the sight of God and Christ, what are, we, what are we more disposed to be occupied with? I'm going to tell you, this is what it is. We're more disposed and being occupied with and telling God what we are in ourselves yeah. apart from Christ, apart from a proper image, apart from that. Apart from it. Why? Here's what we do. We become more occupied and more taken up with our own, listen to this, self-consciousness and not God-consciousness. And that's why he's given us the word in Hebrews 4.12 to do that separating, sanctifying process. Again, in Hebrews 4 verse 12, and that's why the individual, each individual in the spiritual warfare that we're in must take up the sword of the Spirit. In Ephesians chapter 6 and verse 17. That's the offensive weapon. All the others are defensive. But the offensive weapon is the sword of the spirit. That has to do with functioning properly in a proper image in Christ. So we become more occupied with what we are in ourselves than we become more occupied with ourselves than with allowing him to tell us through the Holy Spirit who we are in Christ. Is there any such thing as fellowship outside of that? There's no such thing. No. No. We become more occupied with self-consciousness than with the reality, listen, of God's revelation of himself. Who's right? (laughs) Oh, boy. Who's right? God speaks to us, and he does, on the ground of what he is in himself through his Son by the power of the Holy Spirit. He does that. And of, here's that word of, we've mentioned in and of a lot. I don't know if you've noticed that. Of what he has accomplished in Christ. Such is the nature and character of his revelation of which faith, absolute humility and dependence takes hold of and thus fills that soul with a complete and perfect peace. Oh, boy, do we need peace. I'm just thinking about where we are in our country and this situation, where we are in this world system. And if it's one thing that people need more than anything is peace. Listen, peace of conscience, a settled, cleansed conscience. And boy, do we all need that continually, don't we? We do. But the same word, that same teaching which tells you and I that there's no sin on us. No sin. That old is not attached to the new in 2 Corinthians 5, 16 and 17. It's no sin on us tells us with an equal force in reality and clearness and clarity that we have sin in us. Come on. We have sin in our experience, don't we? We're ignorant of certain things where we can function still in sin, ignorantly. And it does affect fellowship. But then there's outward pride, too. And is that in my experience? Yet, is it who I truly am in a proper image in Christ? That's why we teach. The Bible teaches us. That's why I say we. Because <laughs> the Christ has, has finished the work and the Holy Spirit teaches us. Teaches us. That sin never touches relationship. 
but it deeply touches and destroys fellowship in Christ experientially with an equal force that we have sin in us. If we say that we don't have sin in our experience, who do we deceive? Ourselves. And what? The truth, and who's the truth? In John 14, 6, Jesus said, I'm the way, the truth, and the life, right? He said, sanctify them through your truth. In John 17, 17, your word is truth. Whose truth? Christ. Who's the word? Christ in John 1, 1. The truth is not in us. Is that position or experience? That's experience. Everyone who has that truth, who has truth in him, will know that he has sin in him, in his experience. You'll know that. You will know it. But thank God we have the light that instead of hating it with a condemnation and guilt, we hate what we're not any longer and are one with him. In Psalm 97, verse 10, all you that love God hate evil. In him, you know, and again, this is love in 1 John 4, 10. Not that we loved him, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. And thank God for that, that now we can love proper image because he first loved us in 1 John 4 and verse 19. And boy, do we need to concentrate on these things and lay aside anything that would ever keep us from this. And this is why, again, we say we need to come prepared to receive these things so that sleepiness, tiredness, distractions of any kind, we won't miss this. It's true in our position, but can we miss it in our experience? And thank God that we have this truth. We know that we'll know that. We'll experience the reality that sin is in us. But likewise, the truth is what? Reveals everything as it is. What does that? What reveals everything as it is and puts everything and everyone in their proper place? What is it? It is the light of the glorious gospel and grace of Jesus Christ. It's light. Light. It is light that discovers everything. You see that in Ephesians 5, uh, verses 13 and 14. When do we sleep? When should you sleep? You should sleep at night when it's dark. But what should you do in the daytime? Walk in the light. Walk in the light and have fellowship one with another. There is no darkness in God. There's nothing of the old. No sin in him. And none in us in proper fellowship. And we don't want to introduce our sin nature into any form of what we might say is fellowship. So because truth, again, reveals everything as it is, then what are we to do? Where does that leave us? What are we to do? Well, this is what we're to do. This is the privilege that we have. The privilege that we have is so to walk in the power, listen, of the new nature. The power of the new nature through the power of the Holy Spirit taking the things that are true of us in Christ and Christ in us and showing them unto us. That the sin which dwells in us may not manifest itself in the form of sins. Oh, boy. Boy, oh, boy. That's why Paul needed the thorn. We've, we've said before, 
in 2 Corinthians 12, 9. Not that he was living in sin at that point, but he certainly had the potential to live in sins. Are they paid for? Yes. But do we still have the potential to live in them? And that's not function and personal holiness. Okay? We don't function in the holiness that Christ is. That's very, very personal through the obedience of love. It's very, very personal in every single one of us. Every single one of us. Boy, the time is flying. We're going to have to go into this. I know this for a fact through the week. I just really believe that. And thank you for this truth, Lord. We can all, I, I thank you, Lord. And, and we can thank you together. But thank God that the sin which dwells in us may not manifest itself in the form of sins. What? Listen. The Christian's position, this is our position, immovable, unchangeable, and untouchable. The wicked one can't touch that in 1 John 5, 18. That's talking relationship. We are in Christ. The book of Ephesians goes into that in those first three chapters, specifically the first chapter. And that's foundational for every single believer. That needs to be established in every single believer immediately, immediately. So, what is our position? It's one of what? Victory and freedom. That's our position. What's our experience? Is my experience the equal of my proper image and my position in Christ? Again, what am I bringing into what I believe is fellowship in my own life with Christ? And then what do I bring in when I meet others, other believers? And is there some exchange? And what am I exchanging? What would I be exchanging? Listen, you and I in Christ are not only delivered, listen to this one, and this one's huge for me this morning. We are not only delivered from the guilt of sin, that unbearable burden, but also from sin, listen to this, as a ruling principle in our life. It's not to rule over us. It has no right, and we, God has given us no right for that to happen in our life as, as much as he's given us no right to bring that into fellowship <clears throat> or call it that. Because in 2 Timothy 3, 5, some, they have a form of God. Christians, unfortunately. Yeah. But they deny the power thereof. And when another believer lives in sin, should I fellowship with him? Is there fellowship? No. From such what? We are to turn away. Not to, to accuse them, a believer in Christ? No. To condemn them? No. But to fellowship with them? No. Pray for them. And give yourself to prayer to protect you and you doing so to protect them and you not getting in the way of God needing deeply to meet them where they're at and deal with them in the comfort of his love through Loving chastisement, if need be. Thank you, God. We are to know this. Knowing this. Knowing this. This is Romans, the sixth chapter. Listen. Knowing this, that our old man is crucified with him. <laughs> Not going to be, it is. Everything of the old. Listen. Everything of this whole world system what it looks like, what it dresses like. It's music, it's entertainment, it's art, it's fashion. The whole world, everything about it is crucified unto me. 
and I unto it. Galatians 6 and verse 14. And God forbids that I should glory. Bring that into what we call fellowship? The world infiltrating the experience of the individual believer, then bringing that in and coming together and calling it a local assembly. He does not recognize it as such. Never has, never will. He doesn't violate the honor of his order because it has to do with his nature. Okay, that's why order is extremely important because it has to do with God's nature and he doesn't leave it up to our choice to function the way we think it's okay to function when we come together as his church. His church. I have to laugh when I say those things. Boy, I have so much to learn. Knowing this, that our old man is crucified with him, that the body of sin might be destroyed. Is it destroyed positionally? How about experientially? Is that an experiential reality? Do I, can I have a proper image? Can I that way? The body of sin is destroyed. That from now on, we all, no, we should not serve sin. We should not serve as a slave, that old sin nature. Think it's okay, let's get together and, you know, we can serve that old sin nature together and glory in it. God forbids it in me individually with him and whenever we get together. Because if it's forbidden here in me, it will not be allowed in a proper fellowship. Remember, get to the, the men of God. Jeremiah 5.5, 5, Proverbs 13 and verse 20. See? Because why? For he that is dead dead, separated, and gone from that nature, is freed from sin. That's in nature. Let not sin, that's in nature, reign as king. Let it not reign, or let it not take the sovereign place that Christ is and reign over you. <laughs> Do you see why it's sovereign? He reigns above, supreme, superior to all. That's Christ. Let, and let not sin reign in your mortal body, that you should obey it. Oh, God. That you should obey it in the lust thereof. Okay, when I don't live in obedience to Christ in a proper image, then what am I obeying? I'm obeying sin and some form of lust. Remember again, lust is that that is what? Never satisfied. It's insatiable. Okay. All right, so we're dead. Thank God to that. Because sin will not have dominion over you. Why? Because we're not under the law. You mean just the Ten Commandments? No, the law of sin and death in Romans 8, 2. There's the law of the freedom of life in Christ Jesus versus the law of sin, which is death, separated from him, separated experientially from a proper, pure, crystal clear image about who we are in Christ based upon his image and who he's made us to be in Ephesians 2, 8 to 10. Boy, I tell you, it's just amazing. I was studying and reading these things myself, and as God was correlating these scriptures, I couldn't believe how awesome this was. It's just incredible. And we will never come to the end of the beauty and majesty of these truths. Never, never. We couldn't. 
Not here, and not for all eternity without interruption. Now, that's Romans, what we just read, Romans 6, verse 6 through 14. Sin will not have dominion over you. Why? You're not under the law of sin and death, but under grace. That means we are under him, Christ, who's sovereign above all. He's sovereign. He is all. If he doesn't have all of me, how much of me does he have? If a little leaven leavens the whole lump, then does he have me in my experience? Do I have him? Boy, oh boy. Oh boy. Listen, sin is there in all its native vileness. That sin nature, that flesh that's in us. The old man wants to come back from the dead through the flesh and rule and reign supreme and call the shots and be in control and tell us through the word <laughs> what's good and what's not good, what's right and what's not right and what we think is right. Okay? No wonder it says in Jeremiah 15, verse 19, uh, you will be my mouth and I'll put my words in you through in your experience and only then will you be able to separate the vile from the precious. And we have the precious blood of Christ in 1 Peter 1 and verse 19. It's the precious blood of Christ. That's a precious image that we have of him with us in him. And so we're going to wrap this up this morning. There's so much more and even this morning that I wanted to get into, but we'll have to get into it at a different time. But here again, as we begin to close this, what? The believer is dead to it. The believer is dead to the old. Dead. Dead. Gone. How? How did that happen? You and I died, listen, in Christ. The moment that you and I received him as our saviors, we not only died with him and in him, but he, he died for us and as us in our place. That's why it's called the vicarious substitutionary reconciliation of Christ. The better word than atonement is reconciliation. We have been reconciled through a substitute who first had to propitiate God and then in propitiation for us in 1 John 2 to set us completely free and gave us already a beautiful, crystal clear, pure image to each individual. And we all make up that one new man. Each of us are a part of that one new man in Ephesians 2 and verse 15. So, how? He, we died in Christ. Listen, by nature, our natural nature, we were dead in sin. Notice that word in? We were dead in sin, right? Genesis 2.17, Genesis chapter 2.7, Genesis 3.19 will help explain that and why the psalmist cried out in Psalm 119 verse 25. Oh God, please quicken me, enliven me according to your word because my soul is cleaving to the dust. The soul, the self-consciousness is giving way to the lust patterns of that body, that old body. And God forbid again that I should ever bring that into my relationship with Christ and bring it into a local assembly. And a local assembly is two or three that are gathered together in his name. Anywhere you are. That is a local assembly. It is so amazing. So we're never without provision, are we? Thank God for that. Thank God for that. So by nature, natural nature, we were dead in sin. By grace, 
You and I are dead to it. Oh, God. Yay. We were dead in it. No longer in it. Dead to it and alive to Jesus Christ. This is brought out again in 2 Corinthians chapter 5 and verses 14 and 15. We're dead. Why did Christ die? Because he had to die. Because why? Why did one die? Again, goes into Romans the 5th chapter, verses 12 to 21. Goes right into that too, that truth. If one died, why? Well, all were dead, spiritually dead, separated from God. Why did we die physically? Because we were separated at once. But thank God for us in Christ in Romans 6, 9, he that dies once, what? Dies what? No more. The day of our, our death is greater than the day of our birth. In Ecclesiastes 7, 1, because we were conceived in sin. In Psalm 51 and verse 5, we came out of the womb crying and manipulating based upon lies in Psalm 58, verse 3, and we can act just like that as big kids. <laughs> Well, listen, by grace, you and I are dead to it. That's what Romans 6, and I'm reading it, Romans 6, 6 through 14. We're dead to it. I'm reading it right here in this translation. We're dead to it. By grace, by his unmerited favor, by his work, we are dead. What claim then can anything, listen to me, or anyone have upon a dead man? Hey, let's get together. And let's be one in the flesh. Excuse me? You're talking to a dead man. Did you want a fellowship in Christ? Okay, great. No? Sorry, I'm dead. I'm dead. Mm -mm. I am, I'm not letting that in my experience, in my true image of who I am in Christ. And boy, oh boy, do we, does God have a lot to say to us as men of God? The believer, listen, and we are going to close with this. What claim can anyone or anything have upon a dead man? Can the world affect me if I'm truly dead? Can some lust pattern affect me if I'm truly dead to it? Can someone else's, someone else, a believer who's functioning in the flesh, can, can they affect me? Yeah, if I give myself over to that false authority and that false image, yes. But would I exchange the place that Christ is in my life for someone else or a Christian's flesh? No. Should I even know them after it? No. I shouldn't know them after it, but I sure as heaven's sake should not fellowship because there isn't any. Zero. Zero. <laughs> All right. We're dead. No, none whatsoever. Nothing can touch us. If my position is equal to my experience and my image, nothing can touch me. Nothing. No. Why? Because Christ died unto sin once. In Hebrews 10.10, 10, for all, it doesn't say it in the original, he died once unto sin. But for those that are in Christ, he's perfected forever, completed forever. Them that are sanctified. That's position. How's my experience? Oh, God. Separated from the flesh to function in a proper image in my experience, which becomes the equal of my position in Christ, which keeps him glorified and above me and me under him in grace. So, Father, thank you. We just praise you. Thank you for 
Oh, God, for allowing the Holy Spirit to scratch it in me just to scratch this surface and for all of us. But thankful that we can have this, Lord. Thank you and praise you, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen.